The Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity <laughs> Shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Yay! It's super fun in there. You'd like it. It is. Yes. And we like everybody in there. And how many groups can you say that Seriously. No drama. Just fun. Yep. Just creepy people being creepy. (laughs) Creepers creeping. (laughs) But not on each other. Right, right. Collectively. We're creeping on the world. Yes, yes we are. <laughs> the known universe? I don't know. Anyway. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid. Marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 3. A picture is worth a thousand words, but jewelry keeps talking forever. True. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. And I'm Natalie from Uberdark Designs, an official murderino maker, which is now True Crime Creatives. Yay! Yay! How you doing? I'm alright. I'm uh, kind of surrounded by candle equipment. <laughs> candle <laughs> At equipment? The moment. Could this have anything to do with the candle book you got for the holidays? Mm, maybe. <laughs> well, it, it kind of started as me just needing a pair of white candles for a spell. Mm-hmm. And kind of... It snowballed. <laughs> it snowballed. Yep, yep. That'll happen yep. with any craft. It really does. Um, yeah, it, imagine a pentagram embosser. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. So you're so. making all the candles. My, uh, my tea lights, man. They're going to be fancy as shit. <laughs> And really, what other kind of tea lights do you need? You know, gotta be fancy as shit. I feel like that's the correct answer. I I agree. I agree. I wonder if you use regular mold release with something like that. Like you would for resin. Hmm. To stamp it? Yeah. Or you can just use... Well, because you need to let it set for long enough for it not to fall right hmm i'm, I'm not sure because the wax that uh, you use to seal things with is definitely thicker than like the viscosity is just like thicker than well 
you're not melting it as much. Um, you, True. Because you're just right. You're not melting holding it all the a lighter and dropping it in yeah. clumps that build. But those are fun. I don't know. I love a good yeah. wax seal. Me too. Well, I guess I will technically have a pentagram one. Um, yeah. So if anybody happens to know, just off the top of their heads, and yes, I could look it up, but if someone would like to tell me before I try it anyway and <laughs> light my hair on fire or something, um, whether or not I should use mold release when stamping a candle that's going to be lit, yeah, let me know. Uh, what's going on with you? Not much. I has a cold, like a head thing going on. In case Ooh. I sound even more weird than usual. I am a little loopy on cold medicine and taking uh, some of the Breathe Easy Tea. And it's really ironic because uh, it popped up Friday and Thursday I went in for like my annual checkup and check in with I have a new doctor because our doctor switched clinics um, mm-hmm. and she was the most delightful lady. But she, she we were talking. She's like, oh, you know, you're overdue for you know, you're due for a pap smear. And I was like, yeah, I got to schedule one. And she was like, nope, got you covered. And I kid you not. This woman whipped out a kit and I got sneak attack pap smeared. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. I was not prepared for this. And she was like, you'll thank me after. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, honestly, yeah. well, I am not one of those people who cares at all about getting any sort of gynecological exam happening. Like, whatever. You do you. I'm up here doing something else. Right. right. Um, it's just one of those sneak attacks. But, like, but okay. sneak attack right. pap smears that that's unexpected right and i think it would be a good name for a band um but then yeah of course the next morning i woke up with like this giant head cold and i was like i just saw my doctor um so <laughs> like, she took everything out. well at least you don't have to get back so i'm right have a head cold. i know the lower <laughs> the lower parts doing okay so yeah so that oh, was my that goodness. was fun that was like the highlight of my week i guess um, then and and finally creating and finalizing my patterns for my big posable Bernie and my pocket size Bernies. Yes, your your very grumpy looking Bernie. <laughs> There's one sitting directly over her shoulder right now, <laughs> listeners, and I keep seeing it, and I keep being like, something's looking at me. Oh, yeah, it's Bernie. Yeah, it's Bernie. It's Bernie. So. That, and uh, I found on the TikTok, um, there's, Uh there's an account, and, uh, her, her, the account name is Lady Taphos, T-A-P-H-O-S, and she, it's just her cleaning graves, like gravestones. Oh, yeah, I've seen. And it's just delightful. There's, like, one clip of her explaining because people are like um like what why and she got a divorce and she's and i totally relate to this so single mom suddenly didn't have kid for half the time had no idea what to do with time which is something that i've occasionally had to deal with but i have them like i have mine like 80 to 90 percent of the time 
But right. she she didn't know what to do with her time. And for some reason, like this just struck her something to do of service. But and she talks about like the, the ways to clean it. But she the beginning, she starts out by taking and scraping off like the moss and the dirt. And it's just so satisfying and simple and has that little endearingly creepy touch to it. So it's kind of this like nice little you know, break from the world to to watch her do these things. And every video is just like a, a different headstone. And if she finds out anything about the person, then she, you know, it's mentioned in there. But it's just, it's a nice cool. little, like, palate cleanser for the senses. Yeah, that's more or less what my mom spent the entire summer doing as well. Um, nice. Because she is an extrovert who couldn't be with people. Right. So she started at our family's graves and worked her way out <laughs> there you go and it's it's incredible and you know some of these stones don't have i mean they're they're all of them are significantly older but you know and even just some people don't have family that come around and do it or whatever and yeah, and that's exactly yeah. why my mom couldn't help it she's like well, it needs needed to be done right um although i do really hope that that woman has um, some grave conservators weighing in on how best to do that for older. She does graves. have uh, she does have a system. She uses products that are specifically made for it. So she's not like going out there with like uh, you know, some fabulosa and a scrub brush. She's, <laughs> <laughs> she's got. She's clearly put some research into it, and she's had like she's got her little pot- portable like water spout thing tank and she's which is very very satisfying to watch she's got she seems to have it down like the stuff that she uses is um like cemetery grade Uh, yeah i just it it raises my blood pressure just a little bit every time it's an especially old grave because they're so delicate right right um yes speaking of of delicate graves um, at some point this week, they were, and by they, I don't even know who I mean, someone was excavating in uh, the Trinity Cer- Church graveyard Ooh. in Lower Manhattan, which is, the, as far as I know, the oldest church and, like, the ground is built up because there are so many graves under it sort of thing and i'm just like you know what maybe don't maybe don't do that right now let's just let's let everything calm out like do not release anything excitable right i don't know what you're doing but you're definitely in like that graveyard doesn't get disturbed and there are only very specific people who are allowed to be buried there and i'm not sure if any of them are alive anymore um so like eh, maybe don't but they had like excavating equipment out there oh my goodness yeah just like oh that's that bodes well (laughs) don't 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 fuck with the old graves right now please Well, to be fair, pretty much every park in New York City has a grave site underneath it because that's what we did with the bodies. Right. I mean, I 
well, you grew up in the Midwest. You'd be just driving and there would be some farmland that had like a plot of their family members on it. Like, I mean, it's oh, sure. people were buried oh, yeah. willy nilly <laughs> before, you know. There's a big chunk of a graveyard that a very, very small. Well, it's a cemetery, not a graveyard because it's not attached it's a to church. a church. Yeah. Um, but the a very, very small cemetery where my grandparents are, where there's like, it's tiny. Mm-hmm. I don't okay yeah like somebody who's like yep let's go ahead and and put a cemetery here and i don't remember what the name of the cemetery is but at this point it has the old tacked on to the front (laughs) oh my goodness Um, there's one i need to remember i keep i keep trying to remember to stop and take a photo of it but there's one such small one. We have a bunch of them in the middle of nowhere around here. And there's right. one that's super small and, like, not orderly in any way, shape, or form. But has this giant iron archway in the front of it. It's not cool. It's not really connected. It's not like it's really fully gated in. <laughs> it just has an archway in the front. I don't think it needs to be fully gated in. Right. I think that there's, like, symbolism in the gates themselves, if I remember correctly, and iron containing, I don't know. It's a thing. I mean, I do know, but it's too long (laughs) for me to. It's another episode. Yeah, yes. Very different episode. (laughs) Um, Speaking of which, maybe we should... uh, do our episode but But first first, we would like to take a quick break to thank all of our fantastic curiosity shop members over on patreon because they kick all kinds of ass and uh this would be when we give a totally normal and not a creepy welcome to our newest members but we don't have any new members this week we do have the lovely courtney has upped her membership which we yes. love and appreciate. Thank you very much, Courtney. You are the best twins ever. Yes. Thank you. Uh, but also, all of you. Yes. Patreon members are the best. The best. Uh, yeah. And we would totally go explore that weird, crate, <laughs> creepy, only one archway <laughs> graveyard with you after dark definitely we would even if it was in the woods and dark and creepy i mean i feel like that's implied yeah aren't they always i feel like woods just sprout up around cemeteries (laughs) in the dark (laughs) i agree um yep yes anyway thanks courtney (laughs) and speaking of death you know who had totally <gasps> embraced death in the best and yet worst of ways? The Victorians. Well, today can I'm going to talk that? about Victorian mourning jewelry. Ooh. So, uh, if you haven't listened to us before um, and haven't heard us talk about the Victorians, which we've covered, um, the reason that they embraced death was uh, pretty much it was everywhere. Uh, The loss of children were expected. Disease spread pretty rapidly. Many people didn't live past 17. A lot of women died in childbirth. Uh, 
Some historians have estimated that upwards of a third of Victorian children died before the age of 10. And the average lifespan was like 40 to 50 years. So death was a daily occurrence in a rampant way that hadn't really been, um, I guess, as drastically seen as before. So Mm -hmm. they just kind of accepted that death was at the doorstep all of the time. uh, And thus mourning became an art form to them, really, uh, and a way to kind of discuss... And acknowledge the reality of it. Um, mm-hmm. And art in all forms, including jewelry, was like their way to demonstrate their belief and trust in eternal life and reuniting with beloveds in the future. And it was also like how they remembered a loved one. So how did mourning jewelry truly become a thing? Mourning jewelry took root in the Georgian area, uh, which is the early 1700s to the 1830s. When the execution of King Charles I of England led many royalists to show their sympathies by wearing faceted, like, Stuart crystal pieces with the king's likeness underneath. Uh, The king was from, like, the House of Stuart, which is where the whole Stuart crystal piece came in. Um, With that, like... Ah, yes. The drama of (laughs) the Stuarts and the, what, Tudors? Yeah. Mm -mm. Uh, So with that... It kind of started a trend that took hold, but of course, only like the wealthy aristocrats. And they were like, oh, well, we're just as important, so we want our own mourning pieces. And so they commissioned them when they lost loved ones. Um, however. Oh, of course, because we, we want to be like the king. Right, 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 right. Uh, mourning jewelry really hit its stride during the Victorian era with Queen Victoria. Uh, and yeah. she deeply loved her husband, Prince Albert. And when he died in 1861, she fell into a long depression. She spent much of the next four decades then wearing black crepe dresses and mourning jewelry. She also commissioned portraits and memorials and busts of Prince Albert and other mementos. Yeah, she never came out of full mourning, no, did she? She wore her mourning ring for the rest of her life. Um, And as Queen Victoria set the example for her court um, and was an admired public figure, too, wearing mourning jewelry then became fashionable. Aristocrats and again, the wealthy commissioned lockets, bracelets, necklaces and rings to memorialize their loved ones. She made it fashionable to uh, to mourn in a way that kind of paired well with the way that the Victorians embraced death. Uh, Mm -hmm. An 1892 article on mourning in The Queen, a British society and and fashion magazine, stated, A few trinkets must be worn, if only to accentuate the general somberness of the costume. Because nothing says somber like a bunch of jewelry, I guess. I mean, have you been to a goth club? (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed I have. Uh, (laughs) So, and then as prosperity kind of grew across the classes and enabled an increasing number of people to afford things like tombstones, burials, and mourning jewelry. One Mm -hmm. would even build into their funeral plans that rings would be made for their family. And I say across the classes, but let's face it, it was still all very upper class. Um, Yes. Even maybe middle upper, but I mean, it was still... Not for the um, true masses. The middle class was just 
sort of coming online. Right, right. So what exactly is morning jewelry? Now, when people think of morning jewelry, it tends to be pretty broad, and it's really easily confused with Memento Mori, which Mm -hmm. we will undoubtedly deep dive in another episode. Uh, Oh, yes. But Memento Mori literally translates into, remember, you will die, and embraces death in a broader sense. Morning jewelry, while it may share um, some crossover in, like, the gold and enamel and black aesthetic, it's specifically designed to remember the loss of a loved one. Uh, yes. And it's it's deeply personal, specific to the person lost. Uh, some of the common materials included jet, onyx, pearls, dark tortoise shell, black enamel, bog oak, vulcanite, and gouda percha, which is a natural rubber made from a Southeast Asian tree. Uh, cool. Right? Victorian morning symbolism was much more subtle than Memento Mori. <laughs> uh, Isn't jet fossilized carbon? Yes, I believe it's so. It's like the most hardcore yep. black thing yes, that you could have. Pretty much. They're like, the blacker, the better. Like, we are we are mourning, man. Uh, some common Very motifs metal. included crosses, anchors, which symbolize steadfast faith, and like hmm. a hand holding a U branch or a flower. Uh, pearls, which often symbolize tears, were the most common accents in mourning pieces, uh, accent- or along <laughs> with accentuating, accentuating somberness. Uh, mourning jewelry was a way of like keeping the dearly departed near you, sometimes quite literally. Uh, it was quite common for these pieces to include locks of the deceased's hair. And rings, like, with little trap doors to keep it a bit of hair in were definitely commonplace. Traditionally, mm-hmm. the hair would appear under glass, whether neatly plated or curled up in a locket, ring, or pin. But the 1830s pretty much saw the beginning of a mania of all sorts of uh, pieces of art made from hair. And, <laughs> and we are yes. going to do a whole hair art episode. Oh, boy, are we. <laughs> so... I will I will leave the hair there, but I am <laughs> I am fascinated by another use of it as well, which I did not know until I started doing my research. It, they would take, um, in addition to making the art from the hair, they would take it, dry it, ground it up, mix it with water, creating an inky liquid, and then they would take that ink and it, they would paint like woeful scenes on enameled surfaces of rings or pendants. Or write inscriptions. Wait, what? Yes. <laughs> it's so some of that stuff that's like sepia toned. Yeah. On ivory, which is pretty common. Yeah. Some of that is actually hair ink. I didn't know that was a thing. How did I not know that was a thing? That's the same thing I said when I read it. <laughs> I wow. Like, we got to try to make some. Right? Oh, oh, totally. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I'm all for yeah. that. I'm giving my spouse a haircut tonight. Um, I have hair that I've already started working on a project. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I, I'm aware of I'm aware of your hair. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was amazing because I, I had never, it was new to me. Cool. So aside from hair, uh, the other common forms of mourning jewelry featured uh, was hand-done enamel work in varying colors, namely black and white. Uh, and the enamel often contrasted with like names and dates of the deceased. 
Uh, yeah. So it wasn't like you'd get a ring, you know, you'd go get a ring that had a specific imagery. You would actually like the name and the dates of like birth and death would be on it. Um, again, imagery done in sepia or perhaps hair ink on ivory. Um, and often they were hair ink. Wow. The images were elaborate and poetic, like a woman weeping at a tombstone or weeping willow trees blowing in the wind, urns with inscriptions, like inscriptions and symbols or angels and birds, um, incorporating colors and materials which told the story of the life lost. So like pearls represented a child lost, black agate, onyx, jet, obsidian, vulcanite, and hematite were also super popular choices just to symbolize grief overall and then white enamel was represent usually represented an unwed virginal woman or sometimes a child um not all black jewelry was mourning jewelry however since black was an overall popular fashion choice with women and men at the time um inscriptions of very goth yes yes indeed inscriptions of not lost but gone before we must submit and in memory of were hand engraved or incorporated into the design of pieces uh, earlier in the Victorian period when clothing was bulkier, larger brooches were common as were morning rings as women's clothing shifted to expose necklines, necklaces became more common and brooches became smaller. Um, and you will get into a little bit, which uh, you know, as vic- photography became a medium available to the masses, Small photographs also began to be incorporated into memorial pieces. Yep. Now that we know how and what it may look like, let's talk about the etiquette behind wearing it. Because it wasn't like, hey, my dude died, so I'm going to wear this thing. Um, There's actually like, there's an unending list of rules and regulations regarding like death and burial and mourning in this era. Like, and everything else. And everything else. I mean, <laughs> everything had rules and 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 etiquette. But I think they have the most etiquette when it comes to death and burials and such. Um, perhaps besides like the ancient Egyptian. Um so now to follow the rules that I mean yeah. Muslims and also Jewish people have some pretty elaborate death customs as well. They do. They do. Um, including, like, sitting Shiva and, yeah, there's... Facing Mecca. Yeah. So there's... Being buried in certain right. amounts of time. Yes. Which I know is a problem right now. Oh. Given... Yes. Uh, the current plague. Right. Which is sad. I mean, it just makes me really sad because there's no... Yeah. Everything to do with the pandemic leaves so much lack of closure on so many levels. Like, you can't even be there for somebody in a lot of ways. Ugh, it's horrible. So, um, if you fail to follow the rules um, that were expected, it meant that you were somehow immoral or dishonoring the dead. And Hmm. it was so important that it did not matter if it presented a financial hardship, even for the poor, many would begin saving early in life and foregoing other things to ensure that they had a good burial. The family knew in advance what type of coffin the dying wanted, where they wanted to be buried, and what they wanted to wear. 
women frequently made their own death shrouds and would even include them in their wedding dowry. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. So the Victorians embraced these stages of grieving on a societal level, and the stages were often a visible trend in fashion and jewelry. So looking at somebody, you could tell by the what they were wearing, especially, you know, in fashion, but also the jewelry, at what stage they were mourning and often who they were mourning. So stage one is deepest mourning. This is the time immediately following a death. For a widow, the stage would last a year and a day. And it felt it was felt that reflections um, were a portal into the soul and should be avoided during this phase of grieving, which meant mirrors, photographs, portraits were all turned around and any form of reflection was avoided. Yeah. With jewelry, this resulted in matte finishes and non-reflective surfaces. Although in early Victorian period, women were often expected to remain unadorned or wear no jewelry during this phase. That matte black finish happens to be my personal favorite. I I dig the matte black. Uh, Stage two of grief. uh, This stage lasted about three to six months. Historically, only black and white gems were allowed. Pearls were popular as was white and black enamel again. This stage allowed for fancier fabrics in the clothing, so instead of just the black crepe, now you can incorporate black velvet and silk, lace, fringe, and ribbons. Again, clearly for the upper class when you're talking about those fancier fabrics being incorporated. And then we have the third slash half stage of grief, which is also called ordinary grief. Um... After 21 months, additional adornments were allowed within grieving. Gentlemen could change their buttons from black to silver. Women could wear ordinary clothing and jewelry expanded to allow diamonds, gold, and silver pieces and colors such as mauve. Turquoise and other gems could be used if done tactfully and in a way that honored the continued mourning. Uh, This stage of grief would go on for the duration of somebody's life as, you know, our buddy Queen Victoria. Um, However, the expected length of mourning as it related to fashion and etiquette, again, often depended on your relationship to the deceased person. Widows stayed in mourning for two years, whereas those grieving a child or parents publicly grieved for one year. Grandparents and siblings, six months. Aunts and uncles, eh, you only got a few months. And a continued shortened stage of grieving as your familiar relationship with the person grew more distant. So, like, third cousin, you get, like, a day, I guess. I don't know exactly how that works. There's probably an answer. There's probably exactly an answer to the the minute. So, that, my dears, is a quick jaunt down the rabbit hole of Victorian morning jewelry. Um, Yes, we'll definitely have to cover the um the actual stages of clothing and mourning yes i have oh yes a book on it and it is fascinating yeah all of the rules related to that there was so much and i'm like oh i want to show this thing and i want to show this thing and i want to show this but it's hard to be able to show things and and it is super personal um and yeah but there's i've got some good links in there i found a website that's pretty much just the art of mourning <laughs> like the entire site oh hey that's the book i have nice <laughs> is uh so the website is all about there's resources and stuff in there and some good stuff and then uh, yeah, so i included that i didn't reference uh a whole lot from it 
but mm-hmm. it does have references there, including um, lists of jewelers that still specialize because there is a definite oh, comeback yeah. of morning jewelry. But modern morning jewelry is very different than Victorian morning jewelry. And I had to stop myself mm-hmm. from going down that route, too, and just continuing and from covering. Oh, yeah. I'm about to commission <laughs> something oh. um, for um, my cat. Oh, pickups to yeah. Biggie. Well, I mean, Biggie's all right. <laughs> huh? Oh, not Biggie. Simon. Simon died. Simon. Yes. You, uh, I do not believe met uh simon yeah. in theory in th- uh he was gray and had white paws that's how my ron swanson is he's gray and white yeah and he was 16 when he passed away yeah. right before biggie came i look forward to seeing the commissioned piece because i'm sure it'll be amazing yeah oh there's a video of simon uh watching duck uh pinned on my twitter feed because i didn't i never think to change it so it's just been there for i I don't know how many years definitely check that out uh, yes anyway he's very cute but we can cut some of that out (laughs) the point is i am expecting to commission something i'm not quite sure what i haven't settled on something but uh incorporating some ashes nice uh, a lot of the modern jewelry does incorporate ashes uh, versus like a hair, but I get, I I get I get the hair thing so much. Yeah, me too. I, I'm excited. Well, and hair wasn't just like a death thing. Right, hair was a uh, like you send your best friend a lock of right. hair thing. Men would have wristband like watch bands made from their wife's hair yeah that's a whole nother episode that must be itchy right i was not like they had like hardcore conditioner back then that's what i'm thinking but they also didn't have like hardcore (laughs) they had real curling irons like actual (laughs) never mind i take it all back i take it all back ah uh so, shall we take a jaunt one step over yes. from morning jewelry to I'm so excited. post-mortem photography? I love post-mortem photography. <laughs> it is one of yes. my big, like, obsessions. Like, I got the Acorn channel just to watch the series. His main character was a post-mortem photographer. <laughs> like, Ooh, I'm all excited for I haven't for this. watched it yet, but I have that I'm channel. <laughs> so excited. Tell me everything. Oh, good. Then you can uh, you can correct me if I get anything wrong. I can um, try, but I'm fairly certain you don't get things wrong. <laughs> sometimes do. <clears throat> okay. So, post-mortem photography. We all kind of know what it is, and we all kind of really want to look at it, and also really don't think we should look at it. <laughs> um, and there's an awful lot of, is this person dead or alive, when you're looking at um, antique photographs, specifically. And the answer is sometimes, eh, I, may, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Or when you look at a family Um, portrait, you're like, which one is it? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. The hands are almost always the giveaway. Um, 
unless it's real clear. <laughs> but anyway, so back during the times of like mourning jewelry and um, memento mori being just for the upper class and only a thing that the upper class could afford. Um, similarly, portraiture was a thing that was a luxury item. So, um, the transition between capturing a likeness of a person in painted miniatures or giant portraits um, and photography as we recognize it today arrived on the scene in the early 19th century and with death hot on its heels. So, in a time where mortality rates, especially those among children, like you mentioned, were quite high, the practice of taking a photograph to keep the memory of the dead close at hand kind of made all the sense in the world. Um, although I will say that children weren't really thought of in the same way as we think of them right now. Um, at this point, in the very early times, we're talking children in workhouses. Um, there aren't child labor laws yet. And so there is a bit of a break between, um, like, I think most people think of photos of dead kids. Yes. Um, but early, early versions of this were probably adults, or at least the ones that I've seen that I know are authentic. Um, anyway, that wasn't a tangent I was supposed to go down, but I did anyway. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, so, especially when you consider that there were very few ways of keeping the dead close to you and very few visual ways to do that mm -hmm. and also how frequently people died because, you know, antibiotics mm -hmm. didn't exist yet and such... Uh, so when you consider that, uh, unless a family was wealthy, a post-mortem photograph itself might be the only photograph that would ever be taken of that loved one, which in the earlier times when you're talking painted portraiture, there would probably be no visual record oh. that someone ever lived. That's so unless, weird to think of. Yeah. Unless they happened to be on, like, a parish registry for marriage or birth or something. Um, and, frankly, a, a lot of churches burned. Yeah. Along with their records. I mean, not in a sketchy way, but in right. a... Right, just shit happens way. Buildings do that sometimes. Especially when you have way. all those candles. <clears throat> yes, yes. Oh, Let's not talk about candles being a bad <laughs> idea um, in a home from the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about that. Right. Um, anyway, to our modern eyes, with like our iPhones filled with 15 nearly identical selfies that 
we look through very, very closely to pick just the right one, but then we never actually delete the other ones because meh, whatever. Um, the practice of taking a photograph of a dead person might seem kind of ghoulish or at least strange and unnecessarily morbid, but at the time they were an expression of love and a promise that the person shown therein mattered and wouldn't be forgotten. And like I referenced earlier, at the beginning when the photography process was very new, it was an expensive luxury and would not yet have been available to non-upper-class wealthy people. But as photography itself became more prevalent, the practice of taking a post-mortem photograph became less expensive. Um, even though developing the images was a chore, <clears throat> it was still quicker than any of the alternative artistic methods for portraiture or capturing a likeness. Right. Yeah. So we're going to go down a very, very short rabbit hole of a brief... Brief? Brief? <laughs> history of photographic methods. Because photography is interesting and weird in chemistry. It is. And I like all those things. So the earliest photography methods that actually captured an image, so non-camera like obscura, mm -hmm. um, but actual captured image photography, were called daguerreotypes. And you probably are familiar with what they look like because of photos of Abraham Lincoln and that very famous one of Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> um, they were printed on a silvered plate of copper and they have a very high contrast kind of otherworldly look to them. And they were definitely not something that would have normally been available to anyone other than the rich. Um, so as processes improved, tintype photographs would become popular. Yes. And they are probably what you think of today when you think of postmortem photographs, mm -hmm. um, or at least specifically the older postmortem photographs. The process of capturing an image in any of these types of photographs, but specifically um, talking about tintype photography here, took a long time. Um, I think that I saw in one of the Ask a Mortician videos <laughs> that those of us who are old enough to remember film speeds and cameras, mm -hmm. um, this will make sense. Or ISO, if you're only doing digital. Um, usually film cameras 
were about um like the normal speed film that you would put in was 400 speed Mm -hmm. and that was sort of a balance between being able to capture enough light quickly and also have it be crisp Mm -hmm. and so a comparable tin type though the speed would be not 400 but one <laughs> literally, literally one wow yeah yeah so um another thing that might come as a surprise to someone who hasn't spent time in a dark room is that these methods of photography were wet methods um and they were called that because the image needed to develop well the photographic plate that the image had been projected upon was still wet because a chemical reaction needed to happen to make that image develop and so it could not happen if the plate itself wasn't still wet so among other complications of early photography and especially post-mortem photography was that a darkroom would need to be set up where the photograph was being taken so the image could be developed on site because you couldn't take it with you right you needed to do it now um so i thought that was kind of interesting although it's a lot or in my opinion, I guess, and I have spent time in a dark room. Same. There's there's a simplicity to it because there's not as much of not as much playing around with like dodging and burning as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um so the exposure that you took is the exposure that you were going to get. And it might take a few tries to have the right number of seconds for the plate to be exposed to the light. So it it wasn't as easy as we think of photography being today. And so it made the single photograph that may have been taken of someone in their entire life a lot more special than what we might think of. My friend has a shop in Milwaukee called Swoon, and every holiday season there's a local photographer that comes in that you can book time with, and they do tintype photography. Cool. Tintype photography is really neat. It really is. Um, I linked to a... A YouTube video called Recreating 19th Century Death and Mourning Photographs mm. um, from uh, Caitlin Dowdy's Ask the Mortician nice. um, channel. Or Ask a Mortician channel. She's the mortician. And <laughs> she really is. Of my heart. Right. Um, but that, uh, fun fact, that video was filmed at the Merchant's House, which I have talked about before as the only fully intact home of that era in New York City. And 
that's neat because that is not where she lives. Um, But it is where I live, and I miss going there. But it, it was really cool to see the whole process and also how you would set up a dark room in a regular house right. and so i imagine back that. then it might have been a little bit easier because i'm guessing they did not have nearly as many windows like the lighting like we oh you would have more windows really oh because of lack of yeah um, that's true but that gets complicated if you've ever wondered why every once in a while you will see old buildings that have what were clearly windows bricked up. Fun fact, it was because property taxes have historically been based on the number of windows. Wow. Yeah. So, there's a thing. I'd break Um, it up too then. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a very weird... I don't don't know. My neighborhood's filled with them, and it makes me mad. (laughs) Because, like, why? And I know why. Anyway. So, looking at this from the photographer's perspective is also kind of interesting. Professional photographers themselves would share tips amongst each other for sunlight and posing and reflecting light on to corpses to make them look as good as they could. Um, and since death photography was normal, so was talking about it. So it wasn't, like, we kind of think of it as a taboo, but it wasn't at all. It was just a normal thing you did yeah. because death was out in the open in Victorian times and so was mourning. Death was a very visual presence. You could see it, and, like, nobody was pretending it wasn't happening. It was much more normal. Like we tend to do today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, photographers would generally have the family prepare the body for a photograph, and those preparations changed depending on the time period. Um, At first, it was largely faces, and then scenes got more elaborate. But um, they would then ask the family to just go away. So during the actual photographing process, so just the photographer and their assistants would be in the room because they didn't want the family to be present for mishaps and embarrassing slips <laughs> and Just things that yeah things that were common and a very real concern mm-hmm. um, and I would imagine that photographing a corpse depending on why and how long it had been right? a corpse would be a masterwork of camera angles and light and shadow. Yeah. So, I mean, just thinking about that, I feel kind of impressed. Um, So, like with anything, uh, and like with morning jewelry, trends changed with the times. Initially, photographers needed to do less obviously 
expected things. Um, my favorite weird thing that they would do, uh, because the style was to have people look alive, um, <laughs> and to have them look like the photo had been taken before they died. Oh, okay. Um, they would use literal teaspoons to open the eyes and like to tuck the eyelids up as far as they could to keep the eyes opened and they would actually move the eyeballs oh. into like a normal layout like in case they had gone you know rolled back or done whatever that's so some commitment it yeah, it never occurred to me that you might be moving eyeballs. Right. Like, that is, it makes sense. It just, all right. Um, so, that's also a very good reason why they did not want the family <laughs> in the room. That would be a little unsettling. What are you doing to I daddy's I feel like that eye? might be a bit much. Yep. Um, and they did all of this like specific facial posing work because early photographs were largely of the head and face. Mm -hmm. So like bust basically uh, photographs and later it would become normal to have the body laid out in a position that suggested they were just asleep or they had just fallen asleep. So they might be in a bed or in a coffin or casket or in a baby carriage Ooh, like yeah. any anything that could allow a casual glance to find the scene to be peaceful and that was the whole point yeah. that the image was peaceful that it was their final it's sleep all clearly respectful yes very respectful um, and eventually, and largely in step with changing views of a child's role within the family, um, mourning family members would later show up posed with the dead, which could be something as simple as a mother holding a lost child, or a family elaborately posed around a dead one as though they were alive and part of festivities that were happening. Um, others included just the deceased, but a fabric-covered figure standing in the background that might be placed behind them to hold them upright and in place. And just a side I have note seen here, some of those that are not so subtle. Yep. Well, <laughs> not and not all of those are dead people. Yeah. Um, oh, because you needed to pose still for Super so still, yeah. long. Um, sometimes the things that look like stands that are holding people up are very real human beings uh, <laughs> who are deeply alive, um, but it allowed them to hold still enough for long enough for the photograph. So, just fun fact. <laughs> um, so, you can't really tell just because there's a creepy cloaked figure. <laughs> it, it could go either way. Um, so, after tintypes 
cabinet cards would eventually further speed up the photography process for both the living and the dead. And those are what you might flip through at an antique store. Those are the images that come in like the little cardboard case Mm -hmm. and that look like photographs like we would recognize them. And so there are an awful lot of those in the later part of the whole postmortem photography. I don't want to say fad, um, but... Tradition? Use? Yeah, tradition. Yeah, that's exactly what I want. Um, So, just to confuse things a little more, in case you are wondering (laughs) if you have a dead person in photo (laughs) there are several other kinds of death related types of photography now there's one that really really hurts every time i see it Mm. um there are when it became clear that someone was going to die, often photographers were called in to take pre-mortem photographs. Mm. So they would have a photo of the person as they were alive. And so there are a lot of pre-mortem photographs and it's pretty clear when they are pre-mortem because there's a difference in the eyes and things like that. Yeah. But there are lots of photos of very beautiful, feverish children. Oh, God. Like, big, bright eyes and, Ugh. well, what you know were rosy cheeks. It's obviously not colored. Mm-hmm. Um, they were basically the living version of the effect of what belladonna eye drops were meant to achieve and it's incredibly haunting and i can't imagine no and and you look at them and it's not just kids there are also adults and it's almost worse when they're adults because you know that they know that's why the photographer's there yeah like you know that there's a lot Quite a few of them have titles that are like, a beautiful young woman waits for death. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> a bored young woman uh, with her chin on her hand being like, come on. <laughs> just um, waiting for that death. Yeah. So those exist and I find them to be very, I find them to be more heartbreaking and about a hundred times more disturbing than actual post-mortem photography. I also, I am in awe of the the ones that, you know, of small children and babies and I can't imagine holding it together long enough to be in a photo like that of one of my children. I just, I can't. I can't. I mean, I... They had better drugs available. I'm not a 
So I get, but, <laughs> and that actually is a really good point. Uh, um, but uh, a little opium tincture, right, will uh, do you quite nicely. Um, but there also wasn't like the facial expressions were meant to be somber. Right. There's a lot of looking down, um, and also children weren't the kind of coddled like raised to be treasured beings then that they are now True. and that doesn't mean they weren't very much loved right they were it but it it wasn't abnormal for half of your kids to die before they reached their teen years Oof. like it and so I don't personally have kids, so I don't know how that would feel to me, obviously. But I, I'm not sure. I, I think there is also a stoicism that might have happened uh, around that because getting a photograph taken was a big deal. Yeah. It was serious business and maybe almost clinical. Makes sense. Um. So it wasn't just like you were posing. You were being posed. Right. You were being given instructions. You were probably being given tranquility. I was going to say, um, it would take... Yeah. It would take a lot yes. for, for me to... Yeah. And so a related spinoff of um, postmortem photography is that we already talked about. So we have pre-mortem, post-mortem, and we have mourning photography, which is literally just people dressed in mourning, standing around in various poses with handkerchiefs up to their faces, pretending to be weeping. Okay. Um, there are lots of these photos, and I mean, they aren't necessarily all pretending, but they also weren't necessarily taken immediately after someone died, um, because... You were in full mourning for a while. Right. And if you didn't need the body there, um, like, there's an expiration date on the body. Yep, that's, you've got a window, and that's, especially then, it was a smaller window, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, it's actually really cool um, how the contraptions that were used to cool bodies during the time, including, like, uh, ice-pumped water um that was built in to a frame that a casket would sit on like that stuff's really cool anyway we'll get there at some point yep. <laughs> i do not need to go down that rabbit hole uh so i think that brings us to the end of death-related photography, at least on the surface. And the research materials that I leaned really heavily upon were that video from Ask a Mortician, um, and then a, an article by Kelly Christian, who is from the Order of the Good Death, and it's called... The Unpleasant Duty, an Introduction to Postmortem Photography. And that has a lot about the photographers 
side of things, mm, which is interesting. That is interesting. Um, there is also Beyond the Dark Veil, post-mortem and morning photography from the Thanatos archive. And that is a book which is beautiful and horrible. And as expected, I mean that in like a moving way, the quality is amazing. Um, it is a lovely, lovely book. And there's also the actual um, Thanatos archive, which I have included a link to. And they also have an Instagram that has a lot of these photographs and uh, some context to them. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I recommend checking that out. I know I will. <laughs> well, yes. I obs. am fascinated. Just fascinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a lot. I mean, fair warning if you get beyond the dark veil, pre mortem photography. Uh, is featured quite heavily in the beginning of it. And it's it's heavy. Here's, and I remember, and I think I've told this story before. I don't know if it was a regular episode or Patreon, but when I was working in healthcare, um, one of the buildings that I oversaw, um, a gentleman that lived in there, we would have to warn people when they first started because uh, in his room, he had an entire wall of photos. And many of them were taking at a funeral. Um, oh, yeah. So, which is not genuinely common practice now. However, Honestly, I mean, it was, I think it happens more than you'd think. It's probably. Um, but it was, yeah, there were several photos of, you know, yeah. standing by somebody in a coffin. And we had to, you know, just warn people they went in there that that was a thing and it was okay. And just a, a heads up because I don't know yeah. how many, it, it's not, it's not a very public practice, I don't think. And I think there's, especially yeah, I, I think younger generations are like, he, he what? <laughs> like, so it's still done on some levels, just obviously very different yeah i think it's done in in a sort of different way like i definitely have photos from my aunt's funeral uh where i'm like standing way way back before any services start and getting like the full picture of all the flowers and her laid out and all of the things and i totally um, yeah that makes sense and to be like that's like that's not seen as creepy, but we don't talk about it. Right. We don't talk about a lot when it comes to death, though, which is problematic right. on many levels. But it's that's so a whole other episode. Um, but yeah, it's still done, but differently. And at first I thought it was creepy. But then the more that I had, you know, gotten into it in the past, I was like, hey, I, I totally get it now how... Number one, everybody looks somber in pictures because in old time pictures because they couldn't move. So you that was it. Like even in like when death was not even a part of the photo, they had to nope, sit. You for just s- needed to hold still. You need to hold still. You, know what? you can't hold that smile. Right. So just yeah, just the whole logistics behind it. But yeah, just mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and different communities 
have different approaches. Um, I know that there are... I'm just trying to think... I can't think of any specifics, but I know that certain cultures are more likely to have photographs still mm-hmm. at funerals at, than, like, waspy old me. <laughs> and so, like, that is definitely, it's still a thing. It's just a much more private thing. And, well, I personally think that's stupid. Yeah. But nobody asked me. Right. It. I agree. I totally agree. Because I think that, I think the practice is one of love, and I think that it is deeply, deeply caring. Yes. And I think that that is how those images should be looked at. Like, as someone, like, photography wasn't cheap. No. Someone loved that person enough to want to remember them and what they looked like, even if the photograph didn't quite show them in their prime. Right. And not even just that they love them enough, but it's also, in, like you said, in some cases, the only record that that person exists. So even... Yep. The writing on the back of photographs. Right. Hugely important. Right. Like, so even if you, you know, if they didn't have a long life, their life still... the fo- That photo said their life still mattered. And that they were yep. there. And they existed. Which yep. is... And I love that. Right. I think that is so respectful. Yes. And, like, I think it's every bit as respectful as building a tomb mm-hmm. in someone's honor or... Dedicating a park wearing, bench. <laughs> like, you know? Oh, my... Yeah. Well, speaking of things that my mother wants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> But uh, I, I have also, like, seen mourning badges when, from, uh, or armbands, yes. rather, when Abraham Lincoln died. And he never removed the black crepe from his hat, hat from losing his son, I believe. Yep. I think we've talked about this before. But, yeah, I just, I love the, the, death and mourning was so so public and grief was a was able to be so public because everybody knew what to do right and nobody was awkward about it because there were rules and i kind of wonder if we're about to hit another wave of that just by the sheer tragedy of the numbers of people that we have lost to COVID and who whose lives we will be presumably gathering to memorialize once we've been vaccinated and once this crisis has passed. Right. Um, and that's not just people I, that have passed from that. It's anybody. We, we've lost people this year and there is no funeral, which means there's no closure or no process. And it's... Yeah. It's totally different. You can't hug somebody. You can't be in... And the- almost everyone knows right. someone. <clears throat> and many people know multiple people. Yeah. And many people's whole families. Like, yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. 
And having yeah. having that outward grieving in a way uh, is probably one of the only ways that men I mean men could outwardly show that emotion that they're 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 grieving and that's yeah we don't generally you know toxic masculinity is you don't show that you're grieving that you're having feelings that you're you know it's just not something that's shown whereas if we did if we were more res- I don't know, thoughtful and respectful about how we process and open and honest about how we process death and everything surrounding it i think that it would it would just by nature also affect how we respect life yes i agree completely i think by 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 shutting it down and making it so weird and sterile and and cookie cutter and just odd that it is now yeah like medical right it it goes so far against life but at the same time you know, we have celebration of life things now where the Victorians would just gasp because holy cow, no. But but that's also looking away from death. Right. That's also like pretending it didn't happen. Right. And it's also it's not mourning. Right. In the way that we might need it to be. Exactly. We just shove it down. <laughs> Cuz that's healthy. <laughs> oh, yes. So I'm really sincerely hoping that um weirdly one of my personal biggest anxiety points that is not me or my loved ones getting sick and dying is um well I live in New York City and when this is over Who's going to be missing in my usual places oh, that I go? Yeah. Like, is the person that I say hi to in the bodega every morning going to be there? What about the person? Is that bodega going to even be I, there? That bodega is there <laughs> still. Um, it's across the street. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm not going in there. And. Like, I am worried for, I'm worried about the people who I don't necessarily even interact with other than, like, smiling, who I would see every single day at the same time, doing the same things. I am really, really worried about who's going to be gone. Yeah. Which is a weird, I feel like that is a strange sort of misplaced anxiety to have i don't also i get it i have an anxiety disorder no but i get it i mean i do too but i get that i get that um it's gonna be hard enough to return to a the well i guess new normal or whatever but then to have it be so completely different and to miss the small things that you know the same old ladies that I'd see when I was walking or you know what I mean like this it's that yeah that's exactly what I'm the talking constant about. background like characters. the old man who yells under my window <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, yes yeah no it's very real I also worry yeah. about um 
how many people are succumbing alone in their own apartments and how long it takes for them to be found and processed and all that stuff. You know? That's a real problem here. I can imagine. Um, I think I read a statistic a couple of days ago that New York may have undercounted deaths related to COVID by 50%. Oof. Yeah. And largely that's people who weren't in the hospital. And so, yeah, I, it's, it's a lot and I'm sure it's a lot for everyone who's listening. And so, you know, if, if you've made it this far, cool. If you had to skip over it, also cool. completely yep. understand. It's a, it's a lot. It is. Also, you're not alone. No. <laughs> Therapy is wonderful. If you need... Therapy, medication, If you need, if you need serotonin in a pill form, that's fine, too. Like, there I is guess. no... Grieving. Store-bought. Totally store- a plus. Yes. It gets me through the day, that's for sure. It's all okay. Yep. It it really is. And I somewhat frequently post a photo of the array of medications that I take every day. I used to do daily pill art. I used to make little things out of them. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when I was going through cancer and had like all this stuff I was taking. I would make little, little pictures out of my pills. Well, and why not have it be visible? Like, I feel like um, a lot of podcasters are doing this right now, are being like, hey, I have a therapist and I take medication. And like, if you are through the lens of the podcast, or I guess the speaker of the podcast, um, interpreting me as having my shit together and being fine there are reasons that that is even possible and it's because i have a video appointment with my therapist every tuesday and because i remember to order my meds and put them together a week in advance so i don't forget them like so, yeah. Even my kids have therapists. Yeah. You know, I, I, have, I have actually, it's weird. So I grew up in, you know, standard blue collar Midwest. But my yeah, parents were oddly ahead of the times in a lot of things. And mm-hmm. one of them was, I remember my, my parents putting my sister in therapy. I mean, and we're talking like the 80s. Like it, yeah, it was it, that is early. Yeah, it was. It's never been. So, and I went into mental health care pretty much. So yeah. it, it was always normalized in my family, and I've always normalized it with my kids. You know, they see me set my stuff up. They know that I, you know, they know what I take. They know, you know, even like when the pandemic, as soon as the pandemic hit, I had called my doctor and went, "All right." I know that I'm going to have trouble sleeping and I know yep. my anxiety is going to be amped up. Can we Same. come up with a battle plan? And I was ahead of it because I could be at the time. But Same. there are days 
where if all you do is get up and pee and go back to bed, that's fine. Like, that's yep. a day. That's a win. Why you got up? I mean, it's... Yep. It, it's... We put everything out. We put all of our best faces out there most of the time. I try not yep. to do that. Like, I have told a million stories that will embarrass the kids for the rest of their lives. Um, because eh, we are a mess. They'll live. Right. Because we are a mess. But we're an honest mess. We're an authentic mess. And some days I have my shit together and I feel like Supermom. But most of the time, I'm constantly double like, second guessing myself and pretty convinced I'm failing at life. But at the same time, I, you know. Literally everyone is doing right. that. Right. <laughs> it's like you are, you are not alone. Like, this sucks. No. I miss hugging people. I I do not. <laughs> you do not. <laughs> I I miss hugging people that I care about. Um, who yeah. am I kidding? I've hugged strangers too. I'm not. I am not. But you know, it's yeah. So if you're listening, it it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to not have a freaking good day. And hey, you know what? If you ever need somebody, reach out on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Poke at us and be like, I'm having a crappy day and I will send you pictures of my cat or my kids or a Absolutely. I will give the number to the National Alliance for Mental Illnesses or another hotline. I will it, Yeah. Yeah. It's not Because it's okay to yeah. say you're not fine. Right. It's okay to not be okay. Period. Yep. And if you're not okay right now, that's <laughs> deeply normal. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I worry um, about the people that have had not been affected in any way, shape, or form. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I am a pretty extreme introvert, and I'm also um, on the autism spectrum. So I don't want to touch anybody anyway, and I don't want to leave my apartment either. Right, but So my runs. life has changed relatively little, yeah. like, in fact, but... It's still a lot. There's a difference. I think even I I'm mostly extrovert, but I do have introvertedness too. Um, I think it's like that where you tell somebody you can't t don't touch that button. Like you had no yeah. desire to touch the <laughs> yes. damn button, but now you're like. Well, now I kind of want to touch that button because you told me I can't touch that button. I've walked past that button like 400 times and haven't touched the darn button, but now I want to touch the button. Like, it, it's that... Now I'm looking at a button that I want to touch <laughs> I think really it's bad. one of those things where it's like, I had no desire to uh, to do that thing, but now that you're telling me that I can't do that thing, <laughs> I kind of want to do yes. that thing. Also, um, I saw a meme... I do want to see my mom. Right. I miss my mom. See? I haven't seen my mom in more than a year. And that's a long time for you. Yes. Um. My mom usually comes to visit several times a year. And I usually go there at least once or twice. Yeah. I uh, saw a meme. It was a meme or tweet. And the person was like, what's going to suck the most after the pandemic is I can no longer use the pandemic as an excuse as to why I will not go to your thing. <laughs> I will have to once again come up with excuses. <laughs> I have legitimately talked to my therapist about this. I'm not even kidding. Like, there's a little bit of to me, like, well, we can't. Pandemic. I'm deeply stressed out. 
about being invited to things again <laughs> or being expected to leave my apartment. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to anyway, but I, you haven't made me for like a year and a half. Why now? Why now? That's actually terrifying that it will probably be. Oh gosh, it's February. It is. This is when it started in New York. Yeah, it's been about a year now. Yep. It's when I was sick for a very long time. I Actually, now that you mention it, it's uh, my eldest and I got super sick around this time last year. Yep. And if she didn't, if I didn't take her into urgent care and she didn't test positive for influenza A, I think it was, uh, yep. I would have been convinced that we had COVID because we had everything that, I mean, it was, we were miserable. It was so bad that... Um, her, my youngest was somewhere else uh, for the weekend, and it was ju- was just my eldest and I. We were both so sick. I literally oh. called the Chinese restaurant and ordered egg drop soup delivery because I could not even get up and make soup. So they delivered us these giant quarts of chicken soup. <laughs> like that's how. Sick. I mean. You, you do what you need to do. Yeah, it was. Uh, but yeah, it. Uh, God, but at the same time, that seems so long ago. Yeah, it, it really does. I. Well, I was going through Detroit Metro Airport. That's why I remember when it was. Uh, when I was so sick because. I remember uh, that my lungs yeah. stopped working. Oof. In the airport. <laughs> oh, that's not good. And the inhaler barely touched it. Oof. Yeah, but weirdly, I had been doing manual work, helping my best friend do some uh, cleaning at her mom's old place. Mm-hmm. And so I had been wearing a mask the entire time, and nobody else got sick. Oh, wow. Look at that. Masks work. <laughs> Which I think is interesting. And, I mean, I haven't had an antibody test. I have no idea what I had. But, um, ugh. That was, like, a month of bullshit. Yes. Ugh. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> we went down that rabbit hole. Um, we did. Do we want to talk about <laughs> the weekly worst way to die? After all that, the weekly <laughs> worst way to die. Oh. Uh, my- yeah, may- maybe we'll uh, edit some of that. <laughs> Out, and that might be a bit much. It might be, Um, (laughs) but at the same time, it might not be. I will leave that uh, in your capable hands. Uh, All right. So, what is your weekly worst way to die? I'm gonna go with my sinuses exploding because it feels. Ouch. Because yeah, because I have that whole head cold, sinusy thing going on. Um, and it hasn't gotten, like, super bad yet, but... I'm telling uh, you, put a vibrator on your face. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to explain that to my kids if they walk in, but I'm gonna try it. I am up for anything. I am hopped up on cold meds and breathe easy tea. (laughs) I'm, all I'm saying is it works. Duly noted. Um, and, and uh, yes, listeners, I 
did say vibrator and yes that kind <laughs> what's um, yours mine is being crushed by a coffin while taking a post-mortem photo Ooh. yeah that would suck yep <laughs> depending on when they clicked it would turn the it would be a pre-mortem for you and a post-mortem for whoever passed. Oh, dear. <laughs> what section of the book would it go in? <laughs> uh, I mean, there are questionable uh, photos where it's clear one person has died and the other person isn't far behind. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so. I would mourn anyway. you forever. Well, thank you. I, too, would mourn you, so let's go ahead and not die. I'll pinky swear on that one. Okay, because we've got podcasts to do. We have far too many subjects. Far too many subjects. Yeah, we have a whole world to take over. Wait, that's season three. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Shh. I know, I'm sorry. We're going to tell anybody about that. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey! Listeners, do you want to be spooky internet friends? I don't know that they do now. <laughs> or we just need somebody to be like, hey, I'm not okay with. Uh, we're at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Or you can just find us at bonesandbobbins.com. Yep. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Especially writing an actual written review, even if it's just like, hello, um, because it pleases the internet gremlins and all the algorithms, and that is how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls like you can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls! Yes, I, I require them. Yes. That That's what I live on, by the way. Yes. Morbid souls. <laughs> so, um, it's very important. It's. And on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never, ever forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. No, don't do it. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts Follow us on Spotify or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcast so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content. Quick pause. Have fun. Be careful. You'll do fine. I love you. I'm awkward as shit. Let's go driving. Awkward as shit is our family motto. Have fun. Woo! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can we please have that as a blooper roll <laughs> at the end? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.